France's iconic cathedral, Notre Dame de Paris, has witnessed centuries' worth of historical events. Today, we are going to examine some of the extraordinary moments that occurred in and around her walls during one of France's most turbulent periods, the revolution-filled 18th and 19th centuries. Hey everyone, Christine here with Elizabeth to celebrate the 200th, yes that's right, 200, 200th episode of Footnoting History. Suffice to say that we can't believe we're 200 episodes in, but ultimately, we have you listeners to thank for that, so thank you. This episode is the direct, if belated, answer to several requests we had from listeners to discuss the history of Notre Dame de Paris after a fire occurred there this past April. Trying to squeeze its entire history into one of our relatively short episodes would not do the cathedral's colorful life justice. So, we decided that we were going to hone in on the period that puts it squarely into our Revolutionary France series. But it's also a very eventful chunk of time, so I suggest you buckle up. It is our hope that using this approach will show how Notre Dame is more than just an image on a postcard. It was regularly a site of important religious and political events attended by some of the biggest names of the day. Okay, but before we do that, we're going to jump from the 1700s all the way back to give a little background. If this was a movie, it would be the flashback growing up montage. Think like the movie Up, but less sad. Hopefully a lot less sad. So the history of Catholicism in France is actually really closely entwined. In fact, Clovis I, who was king of the Franks and converted to Catholicism in the late 5th century, is often presented as the first king of the Franks to rule what we think of as France. So basically, France has been seen as Catholic, at least by its leadership, since again the 5th century. And we have him to thank for the City of Lights, as Paris is known. He named the city his capital in the early 6th century. But, of course, when he did, there was not yet Notre Dame. The cathedral, which was specifically dedicated to the Virgin Mary, did not exist before the 1100s when the Bishop of Paris oversaw the commencement of construction of the cathedral we now know as Notre-Dame de Paris on the Ile de la Cité, an island in the middle of the River Seine which runs through the heart of Paris. The cathedral was built on the site of an older religious house of worship, which itself was quite possibly built on the former site of a Roman temple dedicated to the god Jupiter, so basically the area has long been kind of a big deal. Now, As time progressed, and now really speed up the montage in your head, Notre Dame regularly underwent changes like adding side chapels, enlarging windows, growing, shifting. And it's easy for us to assume that because Notre Dame is such an imposing and awesome place, it must have been hugely significant to the royals of France. But the French monarchs actually preferred their hold their coronations in the cathedral at Rez and to be interned at the Basilica of Saint-Denis. But even though the royals didn't see it as a place of pomp and circumstance, Notre Dame was certainly a site of Catholic pilgrimage, and it evolved into somewhere that you'd want to show your friends if you were giving them a tour of Paris, much like it is now. In fact, that's sort of what happened for the future queen, Marie Antoinette, in the 18th century. Marie Antoinette moved from Austria to France for the express purpose of marrying the heir to the throne, King Louis XV's grandson, which she did in 1770. Immediately, she was swept up into court life at Versailles, which is an opulent palace located away from Paris. Although Marie Antoinette, 
with the prodding of her mother, was curious to visit Paris, it wasn't until 1773 that she went there with her husband, the future King Louis XVI. During this trip, which also included visits to what is now the Pantheon and the Tuileries, Marie Antoinette first saw Notre Dame with its enormous dual towers and colorful stained glass, while throngs of people were watching her, of course. Bells rang, mass was said, and they were serenaded by a choir. I mean, that's exactly what happened the first time I saw Notre Dame. <laughs> Kidding. But I totally actually did go to mass there, I think. I lit a candle? I'm not really sure anymore. It's very hazy, but a lot like Marie Antoinette. Think of the Kardashians. Moving on. The passage of three years between Marie Antoinette's arrival in France and her first visit to Paris emphasizes, though, for that time period, how much court life centered on Versailles in pre-revolutionary France. But Paris and the cathedral? Oh, that, my friends, that belonged to the people. It wouldn't be too long, however, before the focus of French politics moved to Paris. Louis and Marie Antoinette became king and queen in 1774. But as their reign progressed, discontent bubbled among the people. And as the 1790s approached, so did the infamous French Revolution. Which dun, dun, dun. Yeah, exactly. You can learn a lot about through our Revolutionary France series, appropriately named. By the end of 1793... Both Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette had been executed. Now, with, along with abolishing the monarchy, which the French Revolution is pretty most famously known for, the revolution actually also launched a strong movement against religion, with an emphasis, therefore, on France's most dominant religion, Catholicism. During what historian Simon Schoma called the anarchic period of the terror at the end of 1793, Archbishops, bishops, priests, and other religious were forced to step down, while those with the strongest anti-clerical feelings orchestrated a series of actions to remove the sacred nature from churches. Bells were melted, gold and silver ornamentation was confiscated, stained glass windows broken. Interestingly, Maximilien Robespierre, who presided over the most brutal executions of the revolution, until he himself was eventually also executed. Irony! Yeah, he spoke out against those who were celebrating the destruction of religion as men without honor or religion. Which, I mean, yes. So, as the terror, the bloodiest period of the revolution, when the guillotine was regularly taking the lives of Frenchmen, women, children, so as the terror was gaining momentum and the revolutionary government prepared to close all the churches in Paris, Notre Dame was the site of an elaborate festival of reason which is as far from a Catholic mass as you can imagine. During the festival, a large papier-mâché and linen mountain was constructed in the nave of the cathedral. Traditional signs of Catholic worship were removed. A woman was recruited to dress as the goddess of reason. She was carried in, placed upon her mountain to be worshipped as the new deity. Not God, no, no, the new deity, reason. There were speeches, there were songs, revolutionary imagery all around. It was intense. It was, but it doesn't last, right? Intense things, everything's got to flame out. And that's what happens here. But even when the cult of reason is gone, terror is calming down, revolution's calming down, Catholicism's still on the outs in France. Meaning, so was our cathedral, which was basically used as a warehouse for wine in this period. And now I really, I'm just refraining from making a water into wine joke, so congratulate me on that um until the arrival of one of christine's favorite people that's right we basically wrote this entire episode and here's where the shoe drops christine take it away who is it napoleon bonaparte enter napoleon it's my napoleon. favorite 
It Yay! has to be Napoleon. We can't do an episode. It's always Napoleon. Napoleon. Okay. Okay. So the truth is, Napoleon did not ride into Paris, wave a magic wand, and completely restore the Catholic Church in Notre Dame. Sadly, that is not where we are going. However, once Robespierre fell in 1794, another government formed. But it wasn't what Napoleon, who was an up-and-coming military man, thought that France needed. So in 1799, he, well, he quite literally staged a coup and took the reins, and he worked as first consul, supposedly for a limited term, with two others who were aptly titled the second and third consuls. While all this was happening, with the worst of the anti-church actions over, people began to practice their religion again because they finally felt that the coast was clear. But it wasn't official. No, it was not. Until it was. It's one of those sort of situations. In 1801, Napoleon's France made peace with the Catholic Church through a document called the Concordat, which declared Catholics were once again officially free to worship. This means that Notre Dame could now return to its intended function. On Easter in 1802, Napoleon and other dignitaries arrived at the, well, still largely ruined cathedral for a ceremony to thank God, commemorate Easter, and, of course, officially proclaim that Catholicism was back. Naturally, there was a large turnout of curious onlookers. What I almost can't believe is that it was entirely possible to have watched Marie Antoinette enter Notre Dame for the first time, witness the cathedral be de-Christianized and turned into a temple of reason, watch it become dilapidated, and then see Napoleon arrive and mark the official return of Catholicism. I mean, somebody saw that. Some, a lot of somebody's probably saw I'm that. I'm sure That's a lot of somebody saw that. Now, then, like only a few years later, the same person or people could line up again to watch our next great Notre Dame event, the coronation of Napoleon and Josephine as emperor and empress on December 2nd, 1804, one of my favorite historical dates. We know. Everyone knows. We need to get Christine a shirt, people. We're going to just get her a shirt with this date on it. I have a ring with a date on it. I know you have, and, and, tell, and you have another ring with another date on it, but I feel a shirt would just, yeah, I'm going to do this. Wait for Christmas, people. I'm putting it up on the footnoting history page. Okay. <laughs> and yet, it wasn't as though Napoleon immediately knew he wanted to hold the coronation there. I mean, right, the kings of France had not held the coronation at Notre Dame. So once Napoleon made his tenure permanent by becoming emperor, there were lengthy conversations about every detail of the coronation, including the location. We know Notre Dame won, but other places considered include the Champ de Mars, Orez, like the French kings, Aix-la-Chapelle, which had ties to Charlemagne. I mean, they were going all out. But not unlike a major royal event you might see on television today, this one was an hours-long affair with Napoleon Josephine being the last to arrive at the end of a magnificent procession so long that it had to stop several times due to crowding issues, so like modern-day bottlenecking. They were met in front of the cathedral by the archbishop, who anointed them with holy water before they entered. Now, it must be said here, though, that Notre Dame still had a lot of markings around it from the destruction during the Revolution. When people entered, they did so beneath an awning made of wood and stucco that served to hide the areas on the front of the cathedral that were in particularly bad shape. There was a music commissioned especially for the event with a lot of reliance on fanfares using brass and drums. Almost 100 people were there just to take the tickets of guests, and five different places were called upon to supply their orchestras for the event. 
Perhaps the most famous aspect of the coronation is that instead of the Pope crowning Napoleon, he chose to crown himself and then crown Josephine as empress. In crowning himself, Napoleon instantly told onlookers that he believed he achieved this new position through the power of his own work and not from the church or God. The moment of him crowning Josephine in Notre Dame is captured in one of my favorite paintings, completed by Jacques-Louis David. Although it gives you a wonderful look at the crowded cathedral and the splendor of the event, we'll have it on our website for you to look at, keep in mind it is not like a photograph. For example, Napoleon's mother, prominently featured in the image, did not really attend the event. So look at it for a sense of what occurred, but always keep in mind that this is an interpretation of events and not an actual snapshot of how everything looked. However, for those who attended, it is unlikely that any of them forgot this coronation very quickly. It was a long enough event that some people found the ceremony boring while others were breathtaking. In addition to the Pope blessing Napoleon and Josephine and the crowning itself, Napoleon also took a public coronation oath and heard cannon salvos inform the city of what just occurred. The emperor had arrived. And if the coronation kicked off the empire, there was another event that Napoleon held in Notre Dame that he hoped would secure it forever. The christening of his son. Now, Napoleon had been so in need of an heir that he divorced Josephine in order to marry Marie-Louise of Austria in the hopes that she could provide the heir that Josephine had not. Well, on March 20th, 1811, that son was born. Almost immediately, he was known as the King of Rome, the future Napoleon II. In June, Napoleon and Marie-Louise rode the coronation coach to Notre Dame where, surrounded by marshals, foreign princes, court members, and the like, their son was baptized. Okay, so as great as all these Napoleonic events must have been to witness, they could not go on forever because Napoleon himself, as our regular listeners know and Christine cries about every night, Napoleon did not rule forever. It took two times for it to finally stick, though. But after being overthrown in 1814 and then staging a comeback and suffering another defeat, this time the famous Waterloo battle, in 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte was banished from France, and soon after, so was the rest of his family. The young king of Rome, who had been baptized with such hope, never ruled Rome or anywhere else. But someone needed to rule France, so the kings came back. Well, I mean, not the old king, he was dead, and so was his son, but... He had a brother who was living in exile. Louis XVI's brother arrives in Paris in a procession through the city in May 1814. So where does he go, my friends? He goes straight to Notre Dame. He was received there as the new king, and recognizing his late nephew, who never properly ruled as Louis XVII, the new king went by Louis XVIII. He then attended a service of thanksgiving called a Te Deum at the cathedral. Notre Dame, always a perfect site in the heart of the capital for spectacle and celebration. Even when you are restoring the Bourbon family line, the dynasty you overthrew not so long before. Now, outside of the period of Napoleon's brief resurgence before defeat at Waterloo, Louis XVIII was able to stay on the throne until he died, which actually, for what we're about to say, was pretty impressive. It would have been, quite frankly, weird for the restored monarchs to follow in the steps of Emperor Napoleon I and have their coronations at Notre Dame, right? Because that's not what the kings did. 
And although there are images of him in coronation robes, King Louis XVIII never actually had a coronation. When he passed away in 1824, he was succeeded by his brother, Charles X, who did have a coronation. A glittery, sparkly one at Rez, just like his ancestors. And Charles X was eventually overthrown. Get used to that. He was in 1830. The revolution that topped Charles X is often called the July Revolution. And in addition to ridding the country of yet another king, it gave us a particularly famous painting by Eugene Delacroix known as Liberty Leading the People. You probably can picture it. Liberty is represented by a bare-breasted woman in a yellow dress, holding aloft the red, white, and blue French flag and carrying a bayonet as she literally leads the people to victory. Delacroix painted this beloved work at the end of 1830, so right around the Revolution, and it was first exhibited in 1831. The next time you see it, which again will also be on footnotinghistory.com, look at the background. Notre Dame is there. The Louvre's article about the painting tells us in no uncertain terms that although the landscape painted around Notre Dame is imperfect, the artist included Notre Dame to have the towers represent liberty and romanticism. 1831 was quite a year for Notre Dame in French culture, because not only is that painting coming out, but it was also when a novel by a man named Victor Hugo was published, a novel called Notre Dame de Paris, or, as you might know it, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. As much as Quasimodo, the bell ringer of the cathedral, is emphasized to us today, the original title of the novel tells you who, or rather what, Hugo believed was the true star of the novel. And as you probably realize, the book was a huge success, which naturally brought even more attention to the cathedral. But that story itself could be an entire episode. And perhaps it will be next year. Stay tuned. But after the overthrow of Charles X, came the July monarchy under yet another king. This one was Louis-Philippe I. Louis-Philippe was a relative of the previous kings, but not a direct brother. He decided not to have a coronation following in the footsteps of Louis XVIII. Louis-Philippe was also overthrown. See the, the running theme here? I mean, this episode really drives home why I call this series Revolutionary France, even though it goes well beyond the French Revolution of the 1700s, because it was like every few years a member of Monty Python would show up and then be like, and now for something completely different. Which is actually not the worst seg into our mention of the state of Notre Dame in this period. In the 1840s, while Louis-Philippe was still on the throne, the government executed a plan to restore the cathedral. Two architects were given the task of returning Notre Dame to magnificence, Eugene Violet-le-Duc and Jean-Baptiste Lassou. The project outlasted both Louis-Philippe's tenure and the life of Lassou. Once his work partner passed, Violet-le-Duc oversaw the project solo through to its completion in the 1860s, which means it was for a full 20 years after the project began. And as you can imagine... Political events did not cease while Notre Dame was being restored, as much as that probably would have been welcomed by most people in Paris. In 1848, so about four years into the restoration project, another revolution broke out, the one that ousted Louis-Philippe. This one was determined not to have any more kings at the end of it, so it ended up with an emperor. But that wasn't the original intention. No, no, not at all. Originally, the revolution resulted in the Second Republic. This Second Republic elected a president, 
and that president just happened to be Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, nephew of former Emperor Napoleon I. They're back. I know, they're never gone for long. Excited by the like prospect of the Second Republic because it gave opportunity to people who weren't the Bourbons. But despite his family still being legally banned from the country, Louis Napoleon got himself elected to the assembly. Then he saw the law banishing the Bonapartes lifted so that they could return back to France. And then he was elected the first president of the Second Republic. Spoiler alert, he was the only president of the Second Republic. It took a few years after being elected president, but at the end of 1851, he did what Bonapartes do. He staged a coup. Immediately following the coup that was meant to increase the length of his presidency, Louis Napoleon ordered a referendum. He wanted the people, which, no, did not include everybody, to vote to validate his coup. And validate it, they did. At the end of December, it was reported that Louis Napoleon won with an overwhelming majority, seven million people voting yes for him. To celebrate, he also declared that a te deum should be said on New Year's Day 1852 in churches and cathedrals around France. The extended president himself attended the one at Notre Dame. The streets were lined with banners all along the route he traveled, proudly having LN for Louis Napoleon on them. The doorway to Notre Dame was decorated with flags, flowers, and that magic number, 7 million. Inside, candles hung from the ceiling and a choir of about 500 sang the Te Deum. The event in Notre Dame was the moment of transition for Louis Napoleon. When he left the cathedral, he did not return to the Elysee Palace where he had been staying. He went to the Tuileries, the home of French kings and his uncle Napoleon I. Everyone knew it was only a matter of time before Louis Napoleon became an emperor just like his uncle, right? I mean, that kind of was the trajectory that the whole family went on. And indeed, that change was carried out by December 2nd, 1852, when the Second Empire was officially declared after yet another referendum. The date was intentionally chosen because it was the anniversary not only of his own coup, but of when Napoleon I and Josephine's famous coronation happened at Notre Dame, which we talked about earlier, as well as his uncle's victory at Austerlitz. Louis Napoleon became Napoleon III, honoring his uncle's late son, who had been considered Napoleon II despite never ruling. As much as Napoleon III admired his uncle and would have loved to have had a new coronation in the tradition started by Napoleon I, Napoleon III and the Pope weren't seeing eye to eye over some things at the moment, and the Pope refused to come to Notre Dame. Since no one else was acceptable as an officiant, there was never a coronation. Which is a super bummer. What he did have was a wedding at Notre Dame. Any emperor who wants his line to continue needs an heir, as we've learned earlier. So shortly after becoming emperor, Napoleon III chose his bride, Eugenie. His choice was somewhat controversial, and he gave a passionate speech to the government assembly about his preference for a bride he loved over a political alliance. The whispers about his selection, though, were loud enough that Napoleon III moved his wedding from February 10, 1853, up to the end of January, which sent workmen at Notre Dame into a tizzy because they had to rush to complete the preparations. On the day after they were married in a civil service, Napoleon III and Eugenie got married at Notre Dame. There was a great procession, with the couple taking a carriage drawn by eight horses through the soldier-lined streets. Every French dignitary you could imagine was there. 
but there was a lack of international royalty because nobody could make it there in time once the date got moved up. It was estimated that under 3,000 people could be seated inside, despite 10 times that number applying for entry. Napoleon III wore a general's outfit, while Eugenie wore white velvet and diamonds. The couple entered together, accompanied by a musical march. Now remember, this was a period of renovation for the cathedral, and things weren't done yet, right? So the walls and pillars were covered, and there were lots of flowers and flags and candles to make Notre Dame look better than it really did. Some people were not fans, but the majority of the public weren't allowed inside anyway, so they just waited along the route to see Napoleon III and his Spanish bride. And only a few years later, they would be celebrating something else at the cathedral. It's like they say, first comes a coup, then comes marriage, then comes the heir. That is, that is not what they say. That's what I say. <laughs> so anyway, this is how it went. Although Eugenie had difficulties with pregnancy, including multiple miscarriages, she did eventually give birth to her one and only child with Napoleon III in March 1856. That child was a son, and so certainly he was to be christened in the official Church of the Bonapartes, Notre Dame. Once again, it was time for people to line the streets. This was getting to be kind of like a regular thing. The christening took place on June 14th. Although he would be known to history as the Prince Imperial, his actual full name was Napoleon Eugene Louis Jean Joseph, and his godparents were Queen Josephine of Sweden, a cousin of Napoleon III, and the Pope, both of which had others representing them at the event, so you wouldn't have seen them even if you were lining up and hoping to catch a glimpse. The christening was massive, with the architect still working on the cathedral designing the decor. Thousands of people attending in various places, and music played that was also used at Napoleon I's coronation. The Foundation Napoleon reports that later, Napoleon III commented that this proud day was a good substitute for the coronation that he never had. And indeed, he does seem to have been truly overjoyed, because it's said that he kicked off the fireworks display that night by shooting off the first rocket himself. And the happy times at Notre Dame didn't end there. Our last big event is about the cathedral herself. Because she is the star of the show and deserves her moment. And she's getting it. In May 1864, the restoration project that began way back in Louis Philippe's 1840s reign was completed, and the Archbishop of Paris held a victorious rededication. Gone were the days of trying to hide all of the cathedral's flaws. The gargoyles that feature so prominently in modern people's mental images of Notre Dame were back, as well as a significant number of other statues and objects that had been taken or destroyed, particularly during the terror. Also back was the tall, skinny spire known as the arrow that sticks out of the top of the cathedral. It took decades, but the restoration fixed so many things, like the great organ, the sacristy, and the transepts and the portal of judgment, which is the grand doorway surrounded by religious figures, including Christ during the Last Judgment. It was, without a doubt, a massive undertaking, and one of which Le Duc could be proud. Notre Dame, in all of its glory, outlasted both the Bonapartes and the House of Bourbon. In 1870, Empress Eugenie fled, and in 1871, Napoleon III followed her to England. It also outlasted the revolutionary aftermath that saw other iconic locations like the Tuileries Palace burned down before the creation of the Third Republic. Two world wars including Nazis occupying Paris, and the Fourth Republic have also come and gone while Notre Dame stands strong. France is currently in its Fifth Republic, and Notre Dame is still there. It underwent further renovations in the 20th century, and as we know, needs some love right now, which it will receive. 
and we hope it will continue to be a prominent feature of Paris for centuries to come. But no more Napoleons for right now. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.